This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. So today, preamble, we have a special guest. His name is Matt Beat, and he is a high school social studies teacher, video producer, podcaster, and musician based out of Kansas. He has taught various subjects in the classroom from grades 7 to 12. His YouTube channels, Mr. Beat and The Beat Goes On, have accumulated around 400,000 subscribers and 80 million views, helping expand his classroom to around the world. Beat's specialty is in American history, but he also has a big passion for geography and economics. He has a band called Electric Needle Room, which is most known for original indie pop songs about all of the American presidents. Matt also co-hosts an iHeartMedia podcast called Jobsolete. Also to note in this episode, Steve Steve tends to record on his lunch hours, so in this particular instance, he was forced to drop off the call near the end without saying anything. So you'll notice just a distinct absence of him in the last 20%. That's why. Anyway, hopefully you enjoy the show, and uh, again, thanks to Mr. Beat for coming on. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today we have another special episode. We've got a guest on to talk about historiography. Mr. Beats, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I am Mr. Beats. Well, Matt Beat is my full name, and so you don't confuse me with Mr. Beast. But yeah, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a YouTuber. That's probably how I think you two discovered me. So I make history videos, but also some geography, just social studies in general for my channel. And I also teach social studies in real life to high schoolers. So yeah, I've been teaching for 12 years. Before that, I was in journalism for a little bit. So that might guide the discussion today. I'm from Kansas, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, journalism actually seems like it would be a perfect fit for these kinds of talks. And I think that's kind of what helps guide a lot of your videos, which from my brief diving through seems to be a lot of American content, correct? Yeah, it's mostly American based. Like my geography series mostly looks at like comparing two states or cities, although I occasionally look at outside of the United States. And that's usually where I get into trouble, especially with pronunciations. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, American history as well, specifically. I mean, that's what I teach in real life. So I'm, I'm most comfortable with that. Right. That's cool. All right. So do you want to introduce the topic of historiography? I mean, I guess the overview is that it's how we study history and the study of studying history. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, another way to put it is the history of history. Like just historians often are the ones that are the experts that we learn history from originally. And I would say the vast majority of people out there who teach history, they would not identify as historians like myself. I don't identify myself as a historian. I'm more of a communicator or facilitator of learning experiences for students to learn history. Hmm. (laughs) So it's not a very large group of uh, historians. So their job is really important. And I think they criticize each other, but we also need to analyze their job because, you know, history is the truth about the past. And we make assumptions that we have it all figured out as far as what happened in the past. But a lot of times we don't. (laughs) 
Yeah. Right. It seems like it kind of touches on like epistemology, like what can we know? How do we know it? Right. Because I come across and the reason I wanted to talk about this is because in the current discourse, we have a lot of people on seemingly both sides shouting about how we, we should study history and <laughs> how history has the truth that we should follow. <laughs> and it's like, well, I mean, that's not quite so cut and dry, though, is it? Right. It's people saying things as like an attack, like study history. <laughs> I think that's something that Phil had actually shared with me a couple of weeks ago of like the people who say that are often the ones that don't study history. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It really is something that's a process that's ongoing, that there's never a final product and there should always be healthy debate about history. And that's historiography, really. It's the process itself. And also kind of, I mean, it, it's also funny because you've probably heard the term revisionist history. Have you heard that term? Oh, or yes. phrase? Yeah. Not, not entirely familiar with what it actually means, but I've heard it casually used. Yeah, it's often used as a pejorative. People will say, well, that's just revisionist history. And <laughs> see, like to me, when people call someone a revisionist as a pejorative, it's basically like you're trying to rewrite history for your own personal agenda. Whereas if you're acting like a historian should, how they ought to study history, yeah, you're constantly revising your analysis. I mean, we are constantly reevaluating how we interpret events because we gain new perspectives. <laughs> and so you're constantly revising. So I think that the key, the difference between like, say, you know, your revisionist dude on the Internet <laughs> and a historian is the historian is not supposed to come at it with an agenda. Although we've seen plenty of historians have done that. So that's why historiography is even more important because we got to look at those biases and agendas of these historians as well. Wow. Right. That's pretty meta. It's like the, the <laughs> study of the study of history. And we've talked about meta on here before, but I see the purpose there because you're criticizing potential biases among the historians themselves. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I love to get meta. Epistemology, you mentioned that earlier. I don't remember which one of you said that, but that's essentially yeah, another way to put it, because you really see this in every scientific community, too. People like to think also that science, I keep generalizing here, but just bear with me. I mean, we're talking about really broad topics. So yeah, yeah. I yeah. blame you. I mean, the assumption, again, is <laughs> that when you're in a scientific field, you're just like, oh, I just got to discover something. I want to have a great discovery for the world and make the world a better place. But it's not as glamorous is that it's mostly just pointing fingers at each other and constantly trying to disprove one another. <laughs> like yes. that's actually good though. We want that, the less glamorous stuff. Yeah. Cause my parents and grandparents, they didn't go to higher education and I mean, they studied some things like nursing or quality assurance or something like that, but they seem to see pop science reporting being like study finds x and they're like they said the opposite they said study didn't find x before and they keep flip-flopping but it's like <laughs> these are these are individuals cases one study they might not agree also journalists tend to these days especially go for more inflammatory things but when you were talking about revisionist history before i moved too far off that it reminds me very much of calling a politician a flip-flopper it's like you came up with new evidence 
and you changed your mind according to that new evidence. So that's somehow seen as a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, it should not be a bad thing. No, for sure. So yeah. I also found myself when looking into this topic, I was finding myself going down a rabbit hole of pseudo history, which I guess is exactly what they're kind of mm-hmm. maybe kind of labeling people as. But it seems kind of like a funnel towards conspiracy theories. Do you have any real takes on pseudo history? Well, I think to simplify what that means, it's basically, it's better to give examples of pseudo history. It's basically bad histories. There's even like a subreddit, it's called Bad History, and they just like go through all these bad takes on the methods that historians are supposed to use when trying to figure out if something is true or not. They misrepresent records or misinterpret. A lot of times it's just cherry picking. Again, you're starting with an agenda, like ancient aliens. Like you never have like a historian who starts with an open mind saying, I'm just going to study the possibility that (laughs) aliens, you know, built the pyramids. It it always starts with somebody who's like, aliens built the pyramids and now I'm going to prove it. (laughs) That's always how it is. Like, same thing with conspiracy theories. I think conspiracies are very real. We've seen by studying history that, you know, like, shoot, there was a conspiracy to kill Abraham Lincoln (laughs) and it mostly failed. If that sounds weird to everyone, like, what? Lincoln died. Well, yeah, that one went through. But the other people that were supposed to be killed, they all failed. It was a whole conspiracy to kill multiple people, not just Abraham Lincoln. But like a conspiracy theory is basically you're already making an argument without going through the process of studying history. So jump to another assassination, JFK. I think it's perfectly reasonable to question the Warren Commission, which was the official report that looked at the John F. Kennedy assassination. But (laughs) a lot of times what happens is people don't start with like, let's just re-examine things. They start with the Cubans killed Kennedy or the mob (laughs) killed Kennedy. And now I'm going to you know, fill in the blanks on my own. So does that make sense? Like I'm I'm rambling. Yeah, completely. You're going in with an open mind and asking a question or maybe even having a hypothesis, but not going in with the conclusion and being closed and trying to fit the information to your conclusion in the process, leaving a lot of other information out selectively. And so cherry picking and all the rest of it. Yeah. And ideally seeking out information that'll disprove your hypothesis, seeking the null hypothesis, the opposite, assuming that what you think is true is actually false. Actually, when he's touched on conspiracies, I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories and all that stuff. And I think that a lot of them are obviously, I mean, the name implies complete falsehood. But I think it's interesting that there have been historical conspiracies, and one of which I read a book on by Ryan Holiday about Peter Thiel taking down Gawker Media through Hulk Hogan. Have you heard about that whole story? No. <laughs> no, okay, it's a bit elaborate. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like a whole book on like factually following it that like Gawker Media does no longer exist. And it was tied back to Peter Thiel's actions. But I don't know, maybe that maybe that isn't as valid as the book makes it seem. But generally, I don't dive into these. But I had some points on pseudo history there. Apparently, it has two common features, which are that it's almost always motivated by political, religious or personal agendas, frequently presenting a big lie or sensational claim that will require a complete rewriting of history, which obviously breaks parsimony. And the other one is the idea that there's mainstream history over quote-unquote true history, whatever mainstream history is specifically, I guess. Yeah. I do worry constantly about these terms that we use because it makes it more confusing. But I think if we just say good history and bad history, that would probably... (laughs) 
<laughs> Maybe <laughs> we should it. do that. You that's, know, that's like it, that's, it, yeah. yeah, you know, anything that's not plausible or evidence based, or you are using logical fallacies to reach conclusions, that's bad history. Or I compared a lot. Well, I brought up my journalism background for this reason is because, like an investigative journalist, they are explorers, they are gatherers, they find as much evidence as they can, they make conclusions later, but the conclusions always have caveats. They're not like you know laws. They <laughs> They just are noticing patterns and stuff, and it's meant to, to be a piece of a larger puzzle anyway. You build upon it later. And also, like, a good journalist, in my opinion, brings you along with them and says, okay, you can kind of see that this is through my lens versus just, like, any objective lens. That's really impossible to do anyway, like, to just have an objective viewpoint of any event. Yeah, actually, that... That ties in really nicely to an episode we released recently on naive realism, where people just assume that they see the world unmitigated. And it's just, these are the facts. Obviously, if you don't agree with me, you must be biased severely. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny when people call me biased and I just, I'm like, yeah, I am. What's your point? We all are. We all are. (laughs) Anybody who says that, I guess, maybe doesn't understand, like, I guess maybe they do engage in bad history because they just think it's absolutes like this happened. And there's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. And it happened exactly this way. You know, like, it's just never that way. It's always complicated. I think the best way to go about this, because it can be overwhelming, is you're adding on to the ship. You know, the the ship's already mostly built. And it's built by mostly experts before us that have helped build it. But if Mm. you're like a historian today, like, they're not going to rewrite everything. Like, say a historian wants to study the Civil War. They're not going to try to disprove every <laughs> every interpretation ever of the Civil War. They're just going to maybe look at a sliver of it, and then usually it's something they're more interested in anyway. And then yeah. maybe there will be a slight change to interpretations, and that's usually after years of research, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the idea of standing on the shoulders of giants or kind of building on the evidence. Yes. You're doing some small part, and I mean, that's how research works. And my, my own kind of researcher background have kind of internalized that, but a lot of people don't necessarily, who don't work in research or haven't done research, don't really understand this particular perspective we're talking about. And so I like what you said, we're all biased in some way. Now, what would you say is the difference between personal bias and something a little more stricter like propaganda? I think agenda is really a lot of times the difference. Like, mm. I think you guys maybe discovered me through the PragerU reaction. Yeah. That was live the one I, I spent a lot of time with. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the perfect place to go in this conversation. We can pick on PragerU because Let's it's bad it. history a lot of times. And it starts with having an agenda. Like, Prager you and it's not like they even hide this agenda. It's pretty well established. Oh, it's blatant. That, yeah. Yeah, that they, they are pro free markets. They are pro Israel. Is it like Reaganites? Essentially, yeah, like Reaganomics. So they want to spread these ideas and so they start with the agenda. But the, the difference also is like they pick historians oftentimes who really aren't good historians. Like there's a book that this guy wrote. I can't remember the guy's name, but he wrote it about nationalism. And then they had him on to say that nationalism is good. It's been more beneficial for society. But they label him as a historian, if I remember correctly. I wish I remembered his name. You could probably look it up, actually, because I did partially a reaction on that video as well. But he probably is not a, a historian. And for starters, but also He has an agenda. They have an agenda. You're not getting history at all. You're just getting 
basically a speech to promote nationalism with some cool graphics, you know. <laughs> sure, they'll reference historical events, but they will do so in a way where they'll cherry pick what fits their agenda or their thesis they already have. And I think when I make videos, you know, if you're trying to simplify, especially for high schoolers, you're going to have to make statements and broad statements at some point. But I think it's also important that you don't just give them one perspective. And then you also show them that, hey, I'm actually just like going on this journey myself. It doesn't mean that I have all the answers for you. Why don't you come on this journey with me? You know? Yeah, humility. <laughs> and then I encourage you after the video is done to please go well beyond where I went because a lot of times I'm just at the very beginning of the journey. <laughs> yeah. Actually, on the topic of PragerU, did you ever end up kind of diving into the Gravel or Gravel Institute, the kind of the, the flip side to PragerU? I think they were actually made to debunk PragerU specifically. Yeah. But did you look into them very much? Like, how how is their information? I mean, it's equally biased, but... Oh, yeah. And the difference with the Gravel Institute is they don't deny it, that they're propaganda. They openly admit their propaganda to counter PragerU. And also, the thing that troubled me the most with PragerU is that I saw so many history teachers just showing these videos to their students, a captive audience in the classroom, and they weren't doing it in a way where it was allowing the students to critically think about what they were watching. They were just watching it as if it was just fact, you know, fact spoon fed to them. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to show these videos to say, hey, here's one perspective that they have an agenda here. They are shown a lot in schools. That's that's why I, I tend to go after PragerU a lot. It's how it's shown, it seems. Yeah. It's, it's more of is it shown as a spirit of here's an agenda, let's look at it and talk about it versus here are the facts. Remember them for the test, you know. Yeah, well, we don't have much time with the kids, really. And a lot of times you are just glossing over a lot of events. Like, for example, with PragerU, they have a video about how it was justified to drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they're like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's just the way it is. And yeah, that's how ethics works, right? <laughs> I was going to say, like, what I do in my classroom is we spend a week, like, and they debate it. And a lot of times I'm finding myself having my own mind changed about it. I go back and forth every semester, like, oh, I lean more towards it this way this time. A teacher just to show that five minute videos and then that's it. And it happens. That's disturbing to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Actually, I was wondering if we could bring it back to the, we really just started talking about history broadly. I was wondering if you could tell us about what would be good methods and what would be bad methods that you see in terms of deciphering the past, because people, including myself, don't really know exactly what kind of new techniques or new developments. I guess the only instance I've really heard was in the tombs in China with the Terracotta Warriors where they actually know of extra tombs, but they don't think they have the technology to excavate them without damaging things beyond recognition. So they're just leaving them. And I think they're using like x-rays or something or MRI systems, I guess. But what would you say is like a general good methods and what are the more common bad methods if you have any that come to mind? What you're talking about might dive more into prehistory anyway, which is really out of my realm. Like I, <laughs> as far as like the written accounts of things, like when people started writing things down, what you can do often pretty quickly is go back Go back to the original, we call it primary sources. So where it was first, where they first witnessed something. Now that said, you guys probably already know this, but people are notoriously really bad at interpreting stuff. They get it wrong. And so 
I think primary sources are a little bit overrated, at least when they're in a vacuum. However, what's more important to me is corroboration. So if you have independent accounts that overlap, then you're starting to get at the truth. And journalists do this today. Like, say, the January 6th insurrection yeah. at the Capitol. I was just thinking about that. Well, that's a very recent history thing. We saw how journalists reported it, but also that's what future historians look at. So what a future historians will look at, and they're already looking at, is, okay, we have different angles. We have actual footage. In fact, we have lots of footage. <laughs> Too much, in fact, probably. <laughs> yes, yes. And then we have even like 10 times as much reactions to that footage. And like you even have a well-established media outlet like the New York Times that put together a documentary but at the same time, they are also choosing, they're making the editorial decision to choose certain clips, and they may have the agenda to make these insurrectionists look worse than they are, I would assume, just based on, you know, yep. the reputation of the New York Times. So you got to take that with a grain of salt. But also, I think the most important thing, like, with all of this footage is that you're seeing, like, patterns emerge pretty quickly, and that's when you know you're getting at the truth. And it's not just, like, he said, she said, they said— so corroboration, I think, is the most important thing when you're hmm. trying to figure out the truth about the past. And then I'm going to step in there for a second, because I, I wonder if you think that today corroboration is actually more or less of a strength, because I've written for blogs around and they often require you to write about stuff that you can't find anything on. And you find a single source that's talking about it. And then suddenly everyone is reporting the same thing, but it's all from one source that's possibly yes. factually incorrect, right? I'm glad you right. brought that up. Actually, I was getting ready to say the next thing that you look at is credibility. Mm. Now, that is also increasingly becoming like, oh, crap, where do I go to for credible news? But at the same time, we know who like has a record of telling the truth and who doesn't, who has a, a good record of keeping good records and who doesn't. So like, you know, the census, I think, is a very credible, that's an institution where we get lots of data about history and they have a good track record overall. AP, Associated Press, that's one of the best news media outlets over the last 50 years. I would say that when you talk about authority, like there are certain sources you absolutely have to value more than other sources. And so primary sources, corroboration, credibility, like authority from certain sources over others. What am I missing? There's something else here I'm missing. Anything you can think of that I haven't mentioned? I bet you you could. You said credible sources, corroboration, I guess physical evidence, if there is any. Well, I, yeah, you could throw that into corroboration as well. But I mean, when you say physical evidence, what do you mean? I mean, hmm, that is a good question. I guess I would think like artifacts that show that something happened, like say still the January 6th thing, like the spot where violence took place, where there would be like blood spatter and other such things like that. You could go straight to the source and look at it perhaps. I don't really know. I'm, I'm sure they clean these things up, but I guess it's still going to be kind of secondhand because like you'll have like police reports and stuff. Yeah, no, no, that's good. I guess that's something we forget too. Yeah, like, so it's also not only being a journalist, but being a detective. So, like, a lot of times you are, like, cross-referencing. I guess, yeah, DNA has become increasingly more <laughs> a part of... In fact, there's a genealogy channel right now that he's actually looking at my family tree. But hmm. it's amazing how that's actually giving us a better picture of history than many other things these days. Like, just looking at DNA, it's amazing. 
Right. We have these genetic tests like 23andMe where you can kind of get your family lineage mapped out through your genetics. And I've heard some criticisms. We're in Canada, so the CBC did a journalistic piece kind of criticizing some of the the credibility of that family history. Do you have any thoughts on those tests and the credibility of them? Well, I think a lot of the problem is you just have regular folks out there trying to do it themselves. And so that's where you get a lot of stuff that is actually bad history. (laughs) But if you have genealogists doing it, they are trained as historians. And I think that's the issue is because it's decentralized so much that just anybody can edit stuff. And then if they edit one part of the tree incorrectly. It can screw other parts of the tree. I mean, there's one site where you can get a family tree for the entire existence of all humans. No. Yeah, it's hmm. – um, let me see if I can find it really quick. Oh, we got to check this one out. It's Genie. <laughs> yeah, it's Genie, I think. G- the Genie's World Family Tree is the largest family tree. G-E-N-I-E? Yeah, G-E-N-I. Okay. G-E-N-I, yeah. And so how is this – created this history of the whole human race and in, in one genealogy uh, how did how did this come come about i do believe it started with when they first started testing dna and people first started spitting in tubes <laughs> okay. yeah I mean, just yeah so like but i mean sure it has its issues but i do think that it's a net positive like I mean, we're finding out lots of things. A lot of people make assumptions about, especially about ancestry, and it sadly leads to kind of racist notions these days even. Really? Because like, I find that when I've come across it, it's been the opposite. Like there was something coming around. I remember Sam Harris tweeted something about it saying that they're right that we do have Neanderthal DNA, but it's apparently Africans that don't have Neanderthal DNA. So that broke the other way. And generally speaking, I guess people find that they do have random other, I guess, what we would perceive as modern day races mixed in because like Genghis Khan, single handedly, his family pretty much affected most of the, the race. And I guess we all kind of we trace far enough back, we all kind of come from Africa. So I always figured that it would kind of break down those those barriers. What what have you seen that has made people turn the other direction? Oh, no, I, I guess you misinterpreted what I said. I, I agree with you that those barriers have been broken down. Yeah. Oh, right. I thought you were saying that they were like finding out that they were like the best group or something like that. But it's like the more we study these things, the more we realize the lines we've constructed are very blurry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just race itself, that wasn't even a thing until about 500 years ago. That was completely. Really? It's a social construct. Well, what was before that thing? Because I remember reading about like, I mean, 500 years ago, I'm not really sure where that place is. Well, there were other ways to to divide people. I mean, hierarchies were were Mm. obviously around. (laughs) They were around. Yeah. They had other ways of labeling people, but they didn't call it race. That wasn't strictly on skin color. A lot of times there were other characteristics that they used. Skin color and, and hair color and, yeah, physical characteristics. Yeah. That, that has been around, but you can't even find the word race before like the 1500s. Like they didn't. The Spanish are really good at just like saying, hey, we need to justify our horrible actions with what we're doing with the Native Americans and Africans. Yeah, they're not so, human. Yeah. So like, let's just go ahead and get this written down. Like, Right. And that brings us to the whole history of like the skull shapes and, and kind of all of Phrenology. Phrenology, yeah. Eugenics. Right. And a lot of this was actually taken as as, as fact. And I heard it was written into policy in the U.S. at, at times of different... I actually, it was in Canada. It was, I heard on the CBC they couldn't... It was official immigration policy at, at some point that we wouldn't allow certain racial groups into the country because they were, quote, unfit for, for Canadian climate. 
And so, yeah, these kind of ideas. Wow. Yeah. Eugenics was actually pretty big not that long ago. It was mainstream, I would say, in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. And Europe, like 100, 100 years ago, really. But what's strange to me about like eugenics, I think, was that Galton, I think, if I remember, it's kind of a close count there but i think galton was going on about that was one of the popularizers and he's the cousin of darwin i think darwin didn't come out with the theory of evolution until a bit after that so i'm not really sure how that kind of maybe that like helped him come up with the theory of evolution i guess that like selective breeding can cause different genealogies to happen i guess but it's a weird mixed history for sure yeah i mean i think with galton i i think he didn't make much money if i remember correctly i could be remembering wrong i think you might be right i was listening to a podcast about him recently <laughs> yeah so like he felt that was a way to like maybe make some if you were to connect it to things that it should be connected to <laughs> see that's something i'm always a little bit worried about falling into thinking because whenever you think like that side doesn't agree with me they must be motivated by profit but like I tend to swing a bit more to the left. I'm center left is what I identify as. And I see some people like Dave Rubin, for instance, who was claiming to be left, but the money seems to keep pulling him more and more right. Do you find that this is a thing on both sides or do you think that one side tends to get a lot of talkers through money? I'm not, <laughs> what do you think about evaluating people that way? I think it's a good way to evaluate people, motivations, incentives. I mean, I, teach economics as well. And I, I'm always thinking about incentives. And so I think historians do it as well. Like if somebody benefits by sharing a narrative, then, you know, you got to question it. And I think Dave Rubin's actually a good example because it's pretty clear that he doesn't really stand for what he used to. And you see it like once he started getting some Wilkes brother money from uh, the Wilkes brothers or those rich oil barons that they're the main ones who donate a lot of money to those conservative media outlets. Prager used one of them. <laughs> I should also point out that Dave Rubin claims to be a former left person that was red-pilled, quote-unquote, and moved to the right. He's a host of an interview show on, on YouTube, and he's known for being kind of like a wet noodle of a interviewer. He never pushes back. He asks very flattering questions and doesn't actually challenge any of the presuppositions on there. At least that's his reputation that I've heard because we, we tend to throw around names and we forget that a lot of people don't necessarily yeah. consume the same media as it's, us. It's so nice to not know about who he is. I, oh, I, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, the, well, I mean, just in general, but yeah, like I think you have to look at follow the money is a trope. It's cliche, but yeah, it's true. Right. It is so true. Right. Like you can't ignore that. And on the other end of it, it doesn't necessarily invalidate someone because I, I hear this thrown oversimplified in a way where people are like, well, he can't be telling the truth because that's his motive. And yet, that's a logical fallacy because it was just be suspicious on the basis of someone's potential motives, right. yet it doesn't invalidate them necessarily. Ad hominem. But I think at the same time, it depends on how broadly we're using that. Because like if you're taking money from like a giant oil baron, then that's on you kind of for <laughs> like compromising your your integrity by taking this money because like it's going to to paint your opinion and so in that time i think it is actually quite valid to to be like wow to get like a mountain of salt <laughs> well it's also like if you have these beliefs anyway before the money comes in what i often see is that's the case with a lot of pundits you know they they have these beliefs, but then the money comes in and they become a little bit more hardline, but the, the beliefs are there anyway. So I, I think most of them, like Ben Shapiro is a great example. He's another... I was just thinking of Ben Shapiro. Yeah, <laughs> he believes it. He really does. He did well before the money came in. And so, like, do you see it on everywhere, like with left-leaning folks too? I mean, 
I think you see it to a certain degree. It's more implicit than explicit. I think a lot of times they don't even realize it. Like they're like your my my audience even like they want me to cover certain topics in history. And if I want to cover something else, like well, I know that's not going to get very many views, so I'm not likely to do it. Like I just released a Civil War video, and it didn't do very well because my audience is used to political history, not military history. And like, oh crap, what did I do? I just because I was all excited, I visited this place and I wanted to share about it. And I'm like, oh wait, they don't even care about this <laughs> yeah yeah that is true because like that's how the algorithms kind of work these days though i actually wonder like where do you think a lot of the left money comes from because like it seems to me most of the money does appear at least to be on the right because like if you're super well established and you're doing really well then you don't want things to change because you've already done really well in this particular political and economic orientation so any significant shift is going to be against you so i find that the right seems to be a bit more moneyed. Maybe I'm I'm biased in that, but like, where, where do you see left money coming from? T- typically, like tech, I guess, is a big example. George Soros. What is he famous <laughs> for? The name gets thrown around by conspiracy theorists a lot, and I'm just like, who? who what, is this? what is he famous for exactly? Yeah, I made a video about him, and because I was fascinated by this too, like my aunt would constantly talk about Soros, and I asked her like, well, who is George Soros? And she's like, well, he's the Antichrist, and that's all she would say. Yeah, that's that's informed. My relatives are a little crazy, but I anyway. <laughs> No, you're right. Those I think really. <laughs> if you look at the political donations in the United States, like I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but it's pretty clear that one side's benefiting more. And I think that's not just your bias or my bias. It's just facts. And so that's like logical. It's rational. You look at if the system in place is helping you, then you want to keep that. So a lot of times the ones who want to shake things up, especially redistributing wealth, especially that, oh, yes. you're going to have a hard time raising money. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's got to be grassroots there. Yeah. So on the topic of like political funding in Canada, I actually found that American politics has a huge warping effect, probably on global politics, but especially on Canadian, because <laughs> it just is so looming that depending on what happens politically in the States, it's going to like greatly affect us. And the narratives that are going on there are constantly bleeding over like I have relatives who are very big on Fox News, so I have to kind of endure some of those talking points. But <laughs> apparently here, one of my friends is a she's a lawyer that works in lobbying. And apparently in Canada, you're only allowed to give token gifts, like I think at most like twenty five to fifty dollars to contribute. Otherwise, you can't actually give direct contributions, I've been told, though I'm still I asked her and she just didn't respond. So I'm wondering if there's something there that like the whole talks after you finish in office after giving a bunch of benefits to all these places, then you go around and get very lucrative talks to enrich yourself after having scratched their back. I think that could still be an issue. But here it seems that we've somehow gotten that out of there or maybe stopped it altogether. But there's always people trying to get it in there. Yeah, that's inspiring, though, that they've they seem to got a, a handle on it because it's the opposite down here. <laughs> oh, yeah, it seems to be a, a massive issue. But uh, I don't know, I'm not going to get into American politics. Cause, uh, again, I'm not well, American. Our original, <laughs> our, like our big topic is historiography. And so I think the same goes with historians. Like you mentioned Fox News. There's another big commentator who kind of fell out of the, the mainstream recently. His oh, name is who I think it is. Bill O'Reilly. Have you heard of him? Oh, of course. Shit. Yeah, but he got taken down by like a, a sex scandal or yeah. some, a number and, and of them, he, right? He's now in his basement and still has a podcast. But he also like wrote a bunch of history books and he used to be a history teacher. That's why I bring him up. What? Yeah, but this no is a way. guy who clearly like wanted to indoctrinate children. And if you look at all of his books, his history books, I've read actually a couple of them because my dad, you know, shared them with me. And wow. But you can pretty quickly see like 
his values that, that come out and the way that he writes about history and the sources he uses, like, and, and also like, you know, a lot of times if you want to be like a counter narrative, you know, that, that, that can actually be lucrative. You can get some money for that. Cause you know, like, Oh, I have the real truth here. And you've all been lied to people are like drawn to yes. that. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. the same appeal of conspiracy theories. And so there's actually a book that, you know, I'm, I'm known online as the presidential history dude. And so I'm reading presidential biographies all the time. And I found a lot of people talking trash about Grover Cleveland, who is one of my favorite presidents. And, you know, I'm biased against these people talking trash, and I usually stick up for them. <laughs> but one day I was just like, you know what? I'm going to see what this is all about. And the crux of it is, like, he allegedly sexually assaulted a woman and then had, like, a baby with this woman and then, like, essentially abandoned this child or prevented his the mom from having access to this child. And so I finally studied it, and a lot of it came down to one book, and I think this guy that wrote the book, he realized that, yeah, this could be a moneymaker. This is not a historian. It's just a journalist who doesn't really have a history training. And I read the book, and the sources that he used can all be traced back to, like, three newspaper articles that were sensationalist when Cleveland was first running for president. And these newspapers were biased. They were pro-Republican, anti-Democrat, which means they were biased against Cleveland, trying to, to not get elected. And when your whole entire book is mostly leaning on these three newspaper articles, like, I'm sorry. like, And I know you know nothing about Grover Cleveland, because why should you? But if anyone <laughs> is listening right now, like, who knows about Grover Cleveland, you probably have come across this, because it was something that got a lot of attention about his alleged affair. But we don't even have any evidence that this happened at all. To this day, we don't know. Like, that's the honest assessment is we don't know. There's not enough evidence. But you wouldn't know it. From all the people that have read this book, to be honest, it was mostly articles written about the book where people formed these strong opinions about Grover Cleveland. Like, Mr. Pete, how could you like Grover Cleveland? He did this. <sighs> okay, have you actually looked at where this information is coming from? No, they haven't. Right. Yeah, actually, on uh, the note of wanting counter-narratives, I'm going to plug for another podcast here. It's not related to us at all. It's called Decoding the Gurus. It's a psychologist and an anthropologist that go through who they deem to be gurus. And they're more, they're not actually spiritual per se. Like, I talk about like Jordan Peterson, the Weinsteins or Weinsteins, and people on the left and right, Ibram X. Kendi. And they go through the things that they do that make them more guru-like. And one of the, the themes, because they, they have a guru-rometer. Uh, <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's, it's actually a great show. But they talk about how one of the very common themes is that they talk about how you have to be very clever to follow this. The, only the ones that are clever in my audience will will get the subtlety of this point. And they'll use like very elaborate and complex language to make a very simple point a lot of the time. So then people will feel that they're on this inside and they're getting the, this information that is missing. And usually it has to do with how the establishment can't be trusted or that the mainstream is completely leading us astray. And some of that, I guess, can resonate because like mainstream media today has lost a lot of its credibility because of like we've talked about before, the profit motives, it's mostly just about attention and less about actual yeah. fact breaking. So it's it's interesting seeing how they break that down. Another thing I was going to ask you about earlier was ProPublica. Are you familiar with that publication? Yeah. What do you what do you find their reporting to be like? I know they're, I believe, entirely sponsored, donated, and it's all 100% investigative reporting. It's how great. do you find them to be? I love yeah. them. Yeah, they're doing great work. I don't know probably enough about them as I should, but from what I've heard, it's very positive. Well, that's good. 
I think the key thing we're we're looking at here is the difference between bias and agenda and how agenda creates these bad history, really, is what you're saying. And even though we all have bias, I think the key part there is to remain open to not knowing and more of a curiosity kind of framework. And so that even though our bias, that doesn't invalidate that we can still have or, or find some valid facts about what reality is and history is really not that it's the 100% truth or it's a law that we're creating but I think it's the attitude of openness versus kind of this closedness that might be at the core of it what are your thoughts yeah exactly and the counter to that is always like well what do you want a bunch of people that are just walking around never sure about anything they're too (laughs) open-minded and that gets annoying too like no like obviously We have values. All of us have values. We have stuff that we believe in. There's no way. I mean, those are formed a lot of times when we were kids. (laughs) So it's like, I don't think you're getting rid of those. However, I think that it's always like when I talk about agenda, I guess the best way to put it is instead of like first having everything figured out and then going to search for evidence, you start with not having anything figured out in terms of new information. You know what you value. You know what you stand for. You know, like, your own beliefs. But there's always new information that's thrown at us every day, especially in the information age we live in. We're constantly bombarded by it. So I think that it's healthier, just as historians do this, just as journalists and detectives do this, is that when new information comes at you, you are not looking to take it and basically fit it into or like ignore evidence that doesn't fit your agenda or only seek out evidence that does fit your agenda that's essentially it yeah and also i think what you're saying is people i guess people are saying they want they want people to be rational about everything and remove emotion from stuff but what we found in psychology is that like people who actually have i can't remember what the damage was but they they couldn't make decisions when they didn't have emotional responses to stuff. Mm. They would sit there going back and forth and back and mm. forth and weighing the pros and cons, and they end up taking no action at all. And I think it's kind of a middle ground where it's like, okay, this is the general information we have. This is the best information I have. And all of life is pretty much making decisions with uncertainty, right? Mm. So we have to just say, like, okay, these are the things that I think are true currently. It seems to be probabilistically in this direction. So let's let's go that way. I feel good about that, I guess. And kind of whittle that down. Well, I also like we shouldn't be crusaders. We should soak it all in. We doesn't mean like we need to have an armor up, you know, like mm-hmm. I feel like I'm having a hard time making my point. But yeah, like, no, I get you. There's a lot of crusaders like self-righteousness, I guess, is what. And we see this on yeah. social media, like I am right and I'm going to make sure everyone. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So yeah it's I will show you <laughs> lack of humility, lack of empathy. Yeah. Steve, do you want to talk about Jonathan Haidt's take on if you have to believe something? Do you remember that? Oh, if, if you have to what? If you have to believe anything, should I or do I have to? <laughs> okay, I'll just jump into it. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're familiar with this, but he talks <laughs> about how if it's already on your side, you say, can I believe this? Like, can I incorporate this in? Because it's supporting my belief. Let's just ignore like the, the frayed edges and just focus on the meat of it because that, that confirms my belief. But if we don't believe in it, then it's must I believe this? Like, is there any kind of hole I can poke in this to be like, mm, maybe not because then we can just end up standing exactly where we were before the evidence came around. I'm writing this down because I love it so much. I've heard of him a lot. I've never read his stuff. Jonathan Haidt? Ah. Oh, we love Jonathan Haidt. Yes. 
I don't know if you, Steve, have you read his most recent book, The Coddling of the American Mind? No, I haven't. Because that, I think you might want to hedge that statement, because I know he's kicked the hornet's nest on the left, because he kind of talks about, I guess some people consider it a panic on universities with like social justice warriors and how their take is, I guess, that the way we're raising or socializing kids now is pushing them towards the opposite of what we want, which is a cognitive behavioral therapy kind of stuff like that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker is one of their tenets. They have in this book, seven great untruths. And I think I was following up on some of the research and it seems like there is some more increasing support on that. But I'm still like you were saying, like you kind of just take extra information and even if you don't like it, or it's kind of sounding maybe alarmist, you kind of keep it in your mind and be like, okay, well, let's just see where this ends up. But for, for them, I'd say his second book is my favorite, which is The Righteous, the righteous Mind. Mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I was speaking, we love Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind book. I mean, it's <laughs> perfectly in line with our whole conversation here. We can link it. The subheading is why good people are divided by politics and religion. That's that's a slab of red meat right there. I mean, that's a good book. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I keep forgetting to check them out. And I hear those books listed all the time, so they must be good. The other one you've probably heard of is The Dictator's Handbook. You heard of that one? Oh, yeah, I've heard of that one. I've read both these at least twice because they're just so dense, but... So I guess, do you have any recommendations for books for us or for our audience, like on general history or, oh, actually on journalism reporting? That's that's an area I'd love to explore more. Um, for journalism and reporting, specifically that, I'm trying to think of back to J school 20 years ago. Or even on interviewing, because like you're actually the third person we've interviewed. And I'm like, we don't really know what we're doing. We're just kind of asking whatever questions we can think of a lot of the time. You know, a lot of times, like, I, I find myself just, like, being inspired by journalists and historians who do good work. And so I guess, like, I can give you some historians and journalists that I have I followed, I guess. I think Stephen Ambrose is one that I kind of followed a lot of his work. And then he was, I think I first found out about him. <laughs> he was on the History Channel. Back when it was uh, pre-Aliens and Sword Wars stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did have a question actually about the Founding Fathers as a source of wisdom. Okay. Because there's this comedian, David Cross. He plays Tobias on Arrested Development. I love that character, yes. I oh, love, yeah, I he's love great. David Cross, yeah. <laughs> but his, his stand-up is so different. But he talks about how his, his favorite kind of waste of time, in his opinion, is how people constantly scream about what the Founding Fathers would think. And his take is that if they were to be brought back today, they would be struck dead from how shockingly different and unrecognizable everything is. And so he's kind of questioning their ability to give any relevant insight. So what do you think about how there's this constant like digging up of the Founding Fathers? Yeah, it reminds me of like religion a lot, like where you have certain figures in history that are almost seen as godlike. <laughs> No doubt. These were smart men. And yes, they're all men. That's important. All white men is important to constantly bring up. But these are men of the Enlightenment. And so if they were around today, like we always view them based on their interpretations of the 1700s. <laughs> but if they were, yeah, David Cross has a point. I don't think I've heard that bit. But, you know, if they were alive today, they would be horrified. Like even Thomas Jefferson, who gets brought up so much, like I think he wrote to John Adams saying that every 20 years, at least once every generation, you should scrap the Constitution and write a new one. What? Like all, yeah, like all... Laws should expire because, you know, technology changes, culture changes. And the fact that the Constitution that's so beloved, the Founding Fathers wrote and debated, has only been amended 17 times since the Bill of Rights, that's striking. Like, And I do think that they would have expected more reforms 
there's a lot that they didn't anticipate. So, but the thing is to assume that they wouldn't adjust their own thinking based on if they were around today. They would see a bunch of things that they would have to reevaluate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially after this last president, Trump, who was like a, a giant stress test <laughs> on that system. And I guess they thought that it would hold up against that. But a lot of these things have changed so dramatically. And also, I think there is like the political context of when it was founded, right? Because from my understanding, like the Electoral College was kind of a concession to bring in and unify more states, I believe. I'm not really sure if that's accurate. Yeah, that's definitely partially true. There's a different concerns. I mean, a lot of the founding fathers were just straight up afraid of democracy. You know, like we shouldn't give too much power to regular folks. <laughs> and so that was a Big, but also, yeah, like to small states were really worried about having their voices drowned out by large states. And you still see that's the biggest argument today, I think, for keeping the Electoral College is we want people in smaller states to have their vote counted more, which I personally disagree with. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like. So then basically the places with more people, it's not one person, one vote, it's one person, a partial vote. Yeah. And also the way I kind of see it, and I, again, I'm not an expert on this, I'm not even American, but we just pay a lot of attention, is that it seems to me that it's been a push of more conservative ideologies that hasn't really been competing for the popular vote. It's more been trying to find ways to shift the system in a way that makes the areas that would be supportive of them more representative. I mean, this is basic politics in a lot of areas where you want to discourage people who will vote against you and encourage or bolster your own base in any way you can. And so part of me wonders if we were to make it completely one person, one vote, not even like direct democracy, like Noam Chomsky kind of stuff, but just one person, one vote, how that would force a shifting of policy because like the right in both parties, frankly, because they're both on the right, it seems to me, but they would both have to kind of shift their policies to be a lot more popular among cities, which tend to veer left because they're more multicultural, right? Yeah. And what do you think about that? Yeah, no, undoubtedly. And back to the founding fathers, if they were alive today, they would have been like, you only have 435 representatives. That's it. Like their minds would be blown. Like you're telling me that your country has 335 million people and you only have 435 representatives for all of them? Yeah, so like we're supposed to be a representative democracy and we really aren't because like you look at who represents us and their approval rating is so low because we feel as citizens we're not adequately represented. So there, yeah. there's your answer. Yeah. And then the democracy index actually is something I, I've been paying attention to lately. The states, I think you guys were 24th in the world for democracy. Canada, in contrast, was eight, which a lot of Canadians will balk at because they think that we're not, <laughs> we're losing our freedoms and stuff. And it's funny because like, again, like a lot of American rhetoric gets pushed over here and it doesn't really fit, but they feel it's true. So they keep screaming about it. But recently, I think the U.S. fell to high 20s. Formerly, you guys were just behind Japan, which was surprising because it's like former imperialist Japan is actually slightly more democratic than the US by supposedly independent metrics and independent evaluators. But I guess people probably who don't like that will probably just attack the sources of that information. What do you, what do you think about this? I think it, I think it's pretty accurate. But the thing is, a lot of people, at least they, they say they don't like democracy here. Like I noticed the trend uh, recently that it's cool to say that democracy is overrated, you know, like that people shouldn't be trusted, bring back the hierarchy type of deal. And it's disturbing. But these are the same people that don't even like authorities and don't like experts, right? These are <laughs> often the same people. So it's like, what 
what do you want? Like, you don't even know. Maybe you're an yeah. example of why we shouldn't have democracy, I guess, because like you can't handle it yourself. I don't know. Like, I'm not point. arguing against it. Yeah. But one final question, actually, because I, like, I want to be mindful of your time. We've been a little bit over an hour. The forward party. Have you been paying attention to Andrew Yang and anything along those lines? He, I, I see he's got a new approach that I think has some promise because just talking about starting a new party, you seem kind of outlandish and crazy to most people's ears. But his approach seems to be talking about ballot initiatives in, I think, municipalities or maybe I think it's municipal or level, not the state level. But through that, they're able to shift to, I think, ranked order of voting so they can choose like their first, second and third choices if their first choice ends up being completely out of the race, their vote shifts to the second place. His approach seems to be trying to get people to change these things on a more local level, because then that can actually make their voices more heard, because he believes that most people don't actually like either party, even though they're registered for them. How do you foresee this going? Do you, what do you know about it? Yeah, I like it. A lot of people are pretty quick to be critical because they always call third parties spoilers, whatever, yeah, spoiler but effect. actually it's more of a, I think more of just another organization, like you said, to foster reform at the local level. And they are, for being a quote political party, they're not really that partisan, I should say, because they're like, well, because Andrew Yang even said himself, we will endorse Republicans and Democrats who support our agenda. And so we're not going to be like just like only running forward party people. But the thing that's most appealing is that the reforms are called at the local level. They're not there to be like only run a presidential candidate. And ranked choice voting is like the premier issue that they're running on. And I think it's great. It, and UBI there. Oh, yeah. UBI, of course. That's right. And I think that we're already starting to see some shifts happening and like Fargo, North Dakota has ranked choice voting. Maine has ranked choice voting. New York City has ranked choice voting. Like in these little towns across the country, you're starting to see it. And I think it's going to spread when people realize, oh, this is actually helping us more than. Yeah. I mean, it might be a little bit more complicated, but it's really not. It's they once they, they do it once they understand it. So, yeah, because I mean, it's not really that complicated. It's like when you have to figure out like where your votes go, but like in the actual act, it's like, OK, you can pick as many of these as you like, put them in order or just like if you only like one or two of them, just put like one and two beside those, because then we're voting for the things we actually want as opposed to voting for the one we hate the least, because that's kind of how yeah. it ends up going. Right. Yeah. Do you guys have a burning the ballot there? Because like here, if we don't like the political parties and the options, we can choose to vote. But it's kind of like an abstain vote where you are burning the ballot, meaning that you're showing I do not like any of these options. It's more of a protest that's probably not going to go anywhere. But do you guys have that option? Nevada has none of these candidates. It's a voting option there on their ballot. So you can just say that I don't like any of them. But I'm pretty sure that's the only state that does that. Does it actually have any effect, do you think? Well, I think it's been good for the state because I usually like what Nevada's doing out there. Like it's generally made it so there's, I think, been better candidates out there and a lot of them still suck. But there seems to be some, you know, like a little bit more independent type candidates that run in Nevada compared to other states because it's been around for a while, this option. So, but I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head, like how many actually vote for that? None of these candidates. That's an interesting thing to look up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just Googled it here. Dang. Okay, so like in 2018, it was almost 2% of the vote was for the gubernatorial. For the Senate, it was 1.6%. Yeah. So 9-0%. That's interesting. All right, well, I guess that's it. I don't want to take any more of your time. So thanks for coming, and we hope to talk to you again sometime. <laughs> yeah, it was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Relatives are all just pure darkness. That's what you're saying, right? You are related to darkness. 
Aren't we all? Not you. You're a child of light. I'm a child of light. Pure, unadulterated light.